0: I now have the privilege of introducing our speaker, um, Joel Butler. Many of you might even know him. He's one of our Sunday school teachers here. um, They're the adult Sunday school class. He's been going here for 15 years, and he's just super great at explaining the Word of God. I'm so excited to hear from him. He also serves as one of our elders. So um, please give a warm welcome for Joel. Thanks, Dana. Yeah, this is my way of making sure you know that I'm not the regular pastor here. I bring up, you know, copper pipes and coils and <laughs> wires and uh, magnets and other, other cool little things. So um, that's our normal pastor, Kevin. Normally wouldn't bring those, those items up here. So um, <clears throat> so I do want to start here with using these little contraptions here to do a demonstration. Uh, a demonstration here using... I've got a magnet here. I've got a piece of steel here. It likes to stick near the magnet. I'm going to start with this piece of steel about the same size as the bar magnet, same mass about. And I'll take this copper pipe and I'm just going to drop the, the steel down the pipe and then catch it at the bottom. No, no, no magic here. But it does require you to just sort of watch this. I'm going to do it once with a couple times with the steel and a couple times with the magnet. And just watch and see if you notice anything different between the two. So here goes first. I'm going to say one, two, three. I'll say drop. Right when I say drop is when I will open my fingers so you can sort of get, get the timing. So one, two, three, drop. Do it again. Just so no, no slight of hand here. Just <laughs> One, two, three, drop. You know, I'll take the magnet, do the exact same trick, and I will say one, two, three, drop. You know, if you notice any little difference here, got to have a careful eye here. One, two, three, drop. A little bit delayed. Would you? Would you did you see that? It, it it was delayed quite a bit. In fact, if you had a precision timer, you would find the delta between them is, is actually fairly significant. Um, Another little demo that can help us explain what we just saw with the copper pipe is to take the same magnet, not the steel, it won't work with the steel, you've got to have a magnet, take a coil of wire, this is a coil that my son Andrew and I wound yesterday with a drill and some mag wire, which is just copper wire that has an enamel on it, and then I fed the output of the coil to this little red LED, so if I take... The oops, that's got a little iron in it. If I take the the magnet and move it near that coil, I don't know if you can see this. The faster I go, the brighter I might be able to get it. Yeah. Anyway, you get the idea. Each time I move, and of course you can it doesn't matter where this is, I can do it wherever I want there. It just the current flows. So <clears throat> this phenomena is a very oh lay that down there. This phenomena is is actually quite amazing. It's something you look at this and say, wow, that's, that's interesting stuff. Sounds like there must be some invisible forces or something at work here. Uh, and, and in honesty, that is exactly right. There is an electromagnetic force known to man that we have discovered. And at this point in our human history, we actually can understand this very well thanks to people like Michael Faraday. who was an English scientist in the 1800s. He's the guy on the far left. Um, He was the one who first found these ideas about electromagnetic induction. Uh, And he wrote a paper about it and became quite famous for it. And the idea is that when you have a moving magnetic field uh, over or near a conductor, it'll induce a current in that conductor. In the case of the of the copper pipe, as the magnet was moving and falling it 's inducing a current in the copper that current is actually creating its own magnetic field, which is opposing and resisting the magnet itself 's field magnetic field, causing it to slow its its decay down as far as its fall rate. In fact, if this was a superconductor and I had liquid nitrogen, I could make the magnet levitate and just sit here and bounce up and down because there would, the current would flow perfectly through the copper or through the through the superconductor. And the same thing holds true with the coil. As I moved the, coil, the, the magnet over the coil, it was inducing a current in the coil, lighting the light. And that's basically what Faraday found um, in October of 1831. Uh, and it allows us to make... Mo- His findings allow us today to make motors, generators, alternators to keep your car running. These very lights are powered by a power plant that has large magnetic fields spinning in coils... Uh, they're either moved by burning coal or high, moving water or perhaps it's a nuclear plant. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, magnetic, electromagnetic induction is the key of what's powering most of our, our uh, infrastructure in terms of the grid. Um, and because of this discovery, you know, Faraday has gone down as one of the greatest scientific discoverers of all time. That's, what, that's actually a quote by other scientists. In fact, Albert Einstein placed uh, Michael Faraday, along with two other individuals, on his wall that he would regularly look at. The other two individuals, the guy in the middle, James Clerk Maxwell, Scottish uh, scientist, and the guy on the far right is uh, Sir Isaac Newton. And perhaps you've heard of these guys. Uh, Faraday, of course, we just talked about, gave us an understanding of the invisible forces surrounding electromagnetic induction and the math to explain it. Uh, Newton on the far right gave us an explanation of gravity. He wrote in 1687 about gravitational force. And we always have a little picture of an apple tree and Newton's sitting under there and an apple falls and hits him in the head. And yeah, oh, there's gravity. Uh, and he writes it, he gets up and he starts writing his document. But Nonetheless, those two guys gave us an understanding of invisible things, realities. Gravity's invisible, but it's very real. Electromagnetic forces are invisible, but very real. And the third guy, James Clerk Maxwell, was, did a great uh, amount of work on electromagnetic radiation, electromagnetic wave propagation, i.e. radio waves. His foundation, which there, every electrical engineering student has to take classes on EM theory, and we always end up learning the Maxwell's five equations because they are what govern electromagnetic radiation and allow us to make cool little radios like our cell phones, how we communicate with the tower. You could trace that all the way back to Maxwell's uh, discoveries uh, also in the 1860s. Uh, his work has become the underpinnings of our modern wireless world. So we have one guy that you could say helped us create our power grid the other guy helped us create all these cool wireless things maxwell's been considered the father of modern electrical engineering now these are obviously powerhouses of physics names that have gone down in antiquity as being the greatest physicist ever that einstein even looked up to and, and said i'm gonna put a picture of these guys on my wall why Why is it that they're so highly revered? I believe it's because they figured out how to explain complex, invisible forces and their interactions. It's complicated stuff. It takes a lot of interesting research, and the reality is these guys just didn't get it just like that. There are a lot of try. I would never want to be the guy in volta. There was another guy who discovered, you know, electricity, you know, early on, having to hold the wires. like He's cranking, ah, you know, you know, these guys had to discover things the hard way, Uh, and so we we greatly look up to them because they helped us explain the invisible world, a very real invisible reality that our eyes can't perceive, uh, and yet they're very real, and thus they these guys help form the foundation of the technology that, we, that is so prevalent today. Now, Newton, Faraday, and Maxwell shaped the foundations of physics through their explanation of these invisible aspects of gravity, electromagnetic induction, and electromagnetic radiation. But consider today what forms the basis or the foundation of what you and I believe. Consider what the Bible says about our God who dwells in unapproachable light in 1st Timothy 6:16. 6, we also know what God said to Moses that no man can see me and live in Exodus 33:20, and we know from 1st John 4 it says no one has beheld or seen God at any time. This is the way God has engineered his cosmos. You and I cannot see our God right now this very second. Um, And thus he requires us to walk by faith, which is an assurance of things hoped for or a conviction of things unseen. And that's a key aspect that he's after for us. So how is it then that we have any understanding of this incredible invisible God? Has anyone perhaps explained him? To us, such as Newton explained gravity? Is there someone that has come to explain the invisible God to us? Well, I want to turn to in our Bibles to the book of John, because I think John answers this question straight on. As he starts his gospel, he opens with a profound prologue that sets the basis for his whole book and his his message, and which I think should form the basis of our Christian life as we walk out of here today. So, if you don't mind, stand with me, and because I want to show the word respect here. Uh, as we read in John 1, verse 1, as John decides, and he's pinning his gospel, it's the last of the four gospels written. The other three have already been written, and now he wants to paint his picture. He starts out 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, if you didn't catch that. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Make sure you got that, too. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overtake it. Skipping to verse 14, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him, that's John the Baptist, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So, Lord, we just pray today as we open your word. We ask that you will teach us, help paint this picture. John does such an incredible job of painting this picture, but we pray that you, in your spirit, would open the eyes of our hearts that we may see this picture with even more clarity. The Logos, your son, and the message that he conveys to us and his explanation of you to us. May we see it with newness of heart and may it impact our lives as we walk forth from here that we may be a light and a beacon to the nations. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so John starts by taking us back to the very beginning, the beginning of all things. He uses the same wording that that Moses used in Genesis one one, in the beginning, uh, and and I think it's key for us to see. Now he introduces us to one called the Word in the, in the, that existed in the very beginning. And I know you, as good students of the Bible, have probably read this section of Scripture multiple times. You probably are immediately connecting the dots. And you're saying, the Word is Jesus. And I'm just going to substitute Jesus in for for the Word. But John didn't choose to do that. He could have done that. He could have put Jesus Christ every time that he wanted to put the Word. He didn't. He used a word to describe Jesus here, calling Him the Word. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why? Why is John so fixed on making sure that he uses this word, the logos, over and over in this passage? Because we need to understand that to really paint the picture. The word, as I mentioned, is a Greek word, logos, which means a word as embodying an idea, a statement, or a speech. It's also key to note that there's a definite article in front of the logos, it is the logos not a Logos, it is the Logos, and we have to catch that, because there's an emphasis that this is God's distinct communication and speech. This is his word, this is his Logos. Uh, And John wants to paint a picture that highlights some significant aspects about this Logos. As he starts, he starts out just right off the bat with profound truths, that we have to hold on to and see what, they, what we can gain from them because they, they paint a picture of Jesus that I think just expands beyond what many think of him as today. In the beginning, it says, He was. The universe was created, but the Logos was at the beginning. Before the foundations of the world as we know it, He was there, verse 1a. Then we go to verse 1b, the second statement. He was with God in the beginning. And then we see he was God at the latter parts of one, so one c. Thus we see these three profound truths. That number one, the word is eternal. He's always existed before all created things. uh, And he has existed uh, before the Lord created everything that we see outside our doors today. Number two, the Logos was alongside God. He was with God. He was there alongside God at the beginning. Um, And then number three, the Logos was completely God. You catch that? The Logos was completely God. Now, clearly John is establishing the deity of the Logos. We can see that. But we're faced with this question, how can the logos be with God and be God? Our brains, sometimes we blow a fuse right there. That that doesn't seem to totally jive. And and I think the answer is in the doctrine of the Trinity. uh, And we don't have time to go into it in its fullest extent. Uh, John didn't use the word Trinity here. He's painting a picture of two persons in the Godhead in this opening section of his book. He identifies the Logos as a he in verses 2, 3, and 4, clearly establishing a personhood with the Logos. He then identifies the Logos in verse 14 as becoming flesh, and then in verse 17, he just just identifies directly who that one was, and he says, Jesus Christ. Um, We also find in verse 14 that the Logos was the only begotten from the Father. We'll come back to the only begotten statement here in a a second. But suffice it to say that he's painting a picture of the Father and the Logos. The Father and the Son with unity together at the beginning, but two distinct personhoods. Um, And I think this is a critical picture for us to understand. Now, next... Consider the vantage point or the perspective that the Logos has been afforded. Uh, If you look at this, we know that the Logos, this master communicator, uh, eternally existed as we've established. He's been present with God the Father from before the foundations of the world who was God And in verse four, or sorry, verse three, he's instrumental in creating all things. Did you see that? He was, he was the one who made all things and all things came into being through him. So the vantage point here, the perspective that this logos would add would be absolutely incredible. Uh, I don't know how many of you have heard the parable of the five blind men and the elephant. Anybody ever heard this parable? I think it's sort of fitting for this illustration because it all is a matter of perspective and vantage point as how you define the elephant. There were five blind men. They took him to an elephant and they said, here, you each, you describe to us the elephant. The first one said, the elephant is like a great pillar or tree because he was blind, he's blind, he's standing there, but all he feels is this great big leg. And he said, it's just like a monstrous tree. Another one was leaning against the side and he said, that's, that's the dumbest thing I've heard. It, it, the, the elephant is like a wall. I mean, he's like a great big monster's wall. I don't feel anything like a, a pillar or a tree. Uh, yet another blind man said, you guys have it all wrong. The elephant is like a rope. As he was at the back, you know, holding on to the, to the tail. A fourth blind man Furiously piped in and said, None of you know the truth. The elephant is like a winnowing fan. As he was up on the neck and he was feeling the, the air movement from the big flappy ear, he said, He's like a winnowing fan. The fifth blind man thought all the others were crazy and out of their minds, he said, You got it. You guys, all of you have it wrong because the, to me, I'm sitting here and I think the elephant is like a polished piece of sharp stone or a spear as he grabbed onto the big ivory tusk. And he was looking at it from that perspective. Um, but what if there was another person that happened to have 20-20 vision that wasn't blind and could stand back and see the whole story unfold? And they could say, you guys all don't have it, don't have it right. You got the guy's holding the Leg, you need to go up four feet and go over a little, you'll discover the thing about the side. The guy on the side, if you go back and wrap around, you'll find the rope back there. And then you go up to the front, you'll you'll feel the ears, and he would paint a picture that would be accurate. Whereas all the others in blindness would not be able to see that picture. So the logos, God's statement, God's word of communication has always had the ideal perspective. That's key when you're trying to explain things, especially invisible things that other people are blind to, and you need to be able to explain it. It pays that you are there to see it all, therefore you can explain it all. Uh, Now, if we're dealing with the logos, the word, the statement, the communication piece, uh, it might be nice to know to whom is he communicating? So I want to ask that question of the text. See if John gives us an answer. I think we'll find a pretty clear one here in verse 4. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, the Lord regularly uses the idea of light uh, as as an illustration to communicate the idea of truth and explanation of reality as over against darkness, uh, which leaves one without an understanding of his reality, and ultimately destined for death. Uh, That's something you find much in the scriptures. Uh, It's fascinating if we stop and think about all this, the light and the darkness, and the fact that he's called the logos, the word. It's fascinating to think about how language, the spoken and written word, how it can speak life into the hearts of man. We see this here as the Lord says, uh, the Logos who possessed life came and was light to men and mankind. There's the recipient of 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 this message. Mankind sat in darkness, but the Logos, the word brought light. We can read in Isaiah, a prophetic about Jesus Isaiah says arise shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you for behold darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you Have you ever gone into a deep cave or maybe gone on a tour of an an old mine abandoned mine Perhaps they've, the tour guides or whatever, they will have some electrical wires with some lights here and there, you know, guiding your way. And you go back in there and eventually get in there and they say, now, we're going to do something here, be forewarned. We're going to flip the light switch and you're going to have no light at all. I don't know if you've ever done this kind of thing. It's, it's actually quite eye-opening in the sense that you, you cannot see anything. It is absolute and utter darkness. So much so that if you put your hand only inches from your face, you will not even know it is there. In fact, without light, there's no difference between blindness and vision. You could have 20/20 vision, and if you do not have light, the 20/20 vision is no different than as if you were completely and utterly blind from the moment you were born. Um, And that I wanted to share a story because we've heard of Helen Keller. I, I think most of us probably have, um, that she was, you know, at, the, at about 19 months of age, she came down with a condition that left her blind, so she couldn't see, deaf, she couldn't hear, and because it happened early in her life, she was never able to develop language, words, the ability to communicate. And she writes in, later, after she did learn these th- how, 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 words and whatnot, she writes this story when she was seven. She said, we walked down the path, this is when she was seven years old, to the well house attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. Someone was drawing water and my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water, first slowly. Then rapidly, I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness as if something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something That was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul. Gave light, hope, joy, and set free. Words can shine light. And the logos, the word, did shine light. Uh, John takes the tie between man and the logos even deeper than just that he's shown a flashlight or something towards man. He actually came. And became man. The Logos. The Word. The one who had always existed before all time and eternity. The one who was God. And was with God the Father. Became like his own creation. Again, we tend to blow a fuse there. That's hard for us to fathom. But he did this. Um, He says in 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. We saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Logos was the one who existed before all time, became flesh. Now, there's multiple reasons why he became flesh, and we don't have time to paint the full picture. But I want to highlight one reason why, that I think fits excellently with what John's trying to convey here is that if this is a master communicator, if he's the spokesperson, if he's the one who has the message, the speech, and he's designed to come and tell us a message. What a better way than to actually send him down to become like us, to walk amongst us, to pitch his tent, as John just said, as he uses the word dwelt among us. That's an excellent way to send your mouthpiece to your creation that you're wanting them to hear. John likes this sort of, this sort of picture of, so much so that when he's writing his epistle later on, he goes back to the exact same idea to start out 1 John chapter 1. Probably not the way you would start a letter, but here's how he started. Listen to what he has to say, John 1 John 1 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning. The Word, capital W, the Logos of life. And the life was manifested, made visible. And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested or made visible to us. Who is John speaking of? The Word of life. Who was it that he came that he could behold, that his hands could touch? That he could see the glory of. I think it's pretty clear. John's same message. This is Jesus, the son of God. The one who came to communicate to us as man. He came to speak to us. So we've answered that question. Check that one off. Now, take another question. For whom is he communicating? Was he just traveling down here to speak what he wants to speak to us? Or could it be that he's speaking for someone else? We know that he's the word, the statement, the speech, and this is the son of God. We've seen his vantage point. He's had an incredible vantage point. We've seen his primary audience is mankind. And so we see that we need to ask, who is he speaking for? Now, fortunately, verse 14 helps us clarify this. It says, the Logos is the only begotten from the Father. Now, we have to pause here because I don't regularly use the term only begotten. It's not something that comes up daily at my work. I don't say begotten a whole lot when I talk on conference calls and with my friends and stuff. Unless, of course, I'm quoting John (laughs) 3.16. I mean, that's just the reality. The, the English translation when they did like the New American and the King James, they, they went with only begotten. The issue here is that that terminology has led to some great confusion. It sounds as if this thing came into existence, that this thing was created. And it's led to whole denominations. This That one English translation of one Greek word into two English words all of a sudden has led to huge divisions and groups that say oh no 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 the logos he's not god he was created and that is not the case with this word the word here is monogenes one greek word compound formed of two greek words mono which means one and genos which is a class a family or a kind so the best view of this word is one of its kind one, the only one of its kind, the only one of its class. Uh, The Logos, Jesus Christ, is the unique person in all of the universe. We've established that he was God, right? In verse 1, we also saw in verse 14, he was man. There's only one that can claim that. That's not the Father. He can't claim that. Nor can the Spirit. Only one, the monogenes, The only one of his kind can claim this. Um, So we find this. Now, Jesus, we see here, the, the Logos, was sent from the Father. Did you catch that? He was from the Father. So if we're asking the question, who is he speaking for, we get the view that he's coming from the Father. Now, Jesus, he makes this exceedingly clear in chapter 12 when Jesus cries out and he says, He who believes in me does not believe in me but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me, beholds the one who sent me. And in verse 49, for I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So clearly, we could say that he's, he's a mouthpiece to speak for the Father, following the very commands of exactly what word to say, where to go, who to interact with, down to those details was directed by the Father. Uh, so when we consider the, the Word as the master communicator sent by the Father, we should also ask the next question, which is a huge one what is he communicating? It would be good to sort of pay attention to his message if he's here to explain this to us. So the closing verses of John's prologue clue us in. It's not, a, not a, you know, a dissertation on it. It's only a handful of verses in John's prologue, but they clue us in to the content of the Logos message. We see in verse 14 that John says the Logos was full of something. He was full of grace and truth. And then in 16 through 18, he says, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Can I say it any clearer? Grace and truth were realized. Grace upon grace came through the Logos. Who was full of grace and truth. And then he closes, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom, the monogenes who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. So to see what he is communicating here, I actually want to take these verses in reverse order. Take, start with verse 18 and work our way back towards 16 and 14. Um, now, and I hope that this sort of hopefully strikes a, you know, resonates with you, but how many people here would love to see God the Father? Yeah, I, I figured that would get a pretty <laughs> that's a pretty easy one there. You know, to behold his throne room, to walk in and to see the four living creatures and the 24 elders. To see the seven flames of fire, which represent his sevenfold spirit. To see the seraphim with the wings repetitively claiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. To see the sea of glass like crystal coming out from the throne. To see the rainbow around the throne. To see the Son of God, the Logos, standing, or actually sitting at the right hand of God the Father. To see these things, to to hear the, the peals of thunder and the light, and to see the lightning. And then to look on the one on the throne, to see him glowing with radiance like the sun, and to hear his voice like the sound of many waters. Uh, this is an incredible viewpoint that John paints in Revelation for both the Father and the Son, to be honest. But to be there in that throne room, to see God, to behold Him, would be absolutely incredible to see Him with the, as if a precious jewel. John talks about Him as an, a great emerald and sardius and his uh, view. But a, an incredible view um, that he paints. But... God said to Moses, no man can see my face and live. So John tells us, though, that some, something here that, that should grab our attention like this. If that's the case, I just read something here that the only begotten, the monogenes, has explained the invisible God to us. That is an incredible thing. Now, it also paints a picture that he was in the bosom of the father. That's another word I don't often use. I don't go around talking about the bosom very often. My kids would probably laugh saying Dad actually said bosom up in front of a bunch of people. But anyway, the reality, the picture here is God the Father and the logos with great intimacy. Like you'd hold, you know, a child close to your chest. That is the picture. That's painted, And he has given us a view to explain and look into the Father. Actually, the word for explain here is, is a word exegeomai, which means to draw out, to show the way, to lead out. It's the same word where you hear people talk about exegete or exegesis. That's the word for explain here that John uses explaining the Father. So, the monogenes, the only one of his kind... In the bosom of the Father, another incredible vantage point, uh, and the Father sending His Son, communicating to us His thoughts, His character, His attributes, His love, His grace, and His truth. And I want to home in on that last part of it because, again, we're working our way backwards up these verses. 16 and 17 spend quite a bit of time talking about grace and truth and grace upon grace and grace and truth and grace and truth he says it multiple times could there not be a picture here that that's what he's wanting to communicate to you do you know when moses asked god he said show me thy glory i pray thee when he was on the mountain and the lord said no one can see me and live but then what did the lord do you remember Yeah, it's incredible. He pushes Moses into the the cleft of a rock and he passes by. and, And listen to what the Lord says. Might sort of ring a bell with what John says the Logos was full of. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Yes, the Father will deal with sin. But first and foremost, Moses, you should hear it repeated in seven seven different ways. Loving kindness, that word chesed in Hebrew. God's word for grace in the Old Testament. His faithfulness to his promises. You see, compassion... You see grace claiming. This is the Lord speaking, by the way. It didn't say someone else spoke for the Lord. This is the Lord speaking. Gracious. And did you catch truth was in there? And his love for those, of the, for the world, which happens to be one of the monogamous main messages that God so loved the world that he sent his monogamous only begotten son with a message that if we listen to him and he loves us and we walk and belief that he can free us from our bondage to sin. So the Logos, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who has always existed, always been, by the Father's side, at, in the bosom of the Father, who today sits at the, by the, at the right hand of the Father. He has explained the invisible God. He has Exegeted the invisible God for us to know him. This is why we get these incredible titles in the scriptures. If we look at the titles for the Lord Jesus, he is called a signal for the peoples in Isaiah 11. He is called the bright morning star illuminating great light in Revelation 22. He is called the light of men as we've been reading in John 1. He is called the radiance of the glory of God in Hebrews 1. He's called the exact imprint of his, God's nature in Hebrews 1. He's called the logos or the word in John 1. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's called the image of God. In Colossians 1.15, he's called the image of the invisible God. In Revelation 3.14, he's called the faithful and true witness. Isaiah 55.4, he's called a witness to the people. These are all titles that have to to do with speaking forth, bearing truth, explaining reality of God to us. They're powerful titles. Titles that we would do well to read and reread and make sure we understand that John chose the word logos here. The written and spoken word. A communication word. In closing, I want us to consider some lessons out of this and the dangers with mishandling the invisible. dealing with the invisible can be dangerous, dangerous business. As I mentioned, back when those ancient discoverers, they had no clue on some of it, and the were, guys were getting shocked, and you know, they could, could lose their life. Well, this next person we put up on the screen, Marie Curie, very famous scientist, turn-of-the-century physicist and chemist, two-time Nobel Prize winner. The first woman to ever win the Nobel Prize for her work on radioactive elements, she coined the term radioactivity. She discovered the elements of polonium and radium. She worked in World War I to help develop mobile radiography machines, basically x-ray machines, that would help you know, x-ray folks coming in that were injured and whatnot. Uh, but, clearly a brilliant woman, but she didn't understand the dangers, with the radioactive elements that she worked with. And as a result, she was diagnosed with aplastic anemia due to her exposure to radioactive elements and the radioactivity therein. And as a result of that, she ended up dying. Now, how we handle the invisible father and his one and only communicator, the Logos, to us is a matter of life and death. I mean, there's, there's no two ifs or ands or buts about it. We must face the reality that God the Father is not approachable outside of His designated door, His designated communicator. And that if we as sinful humans think even for a second that we can walk into that throne room I just described to you on our own outside of His door, we will be we will be destined for immediate death, just like when Azor tried to reach out and stabilize the ark when it fell off the and struck dead. You cannot approach God the Father except through His avenue. Um, the, and this is a this is a serious issue. This is a very serious issue. Consider for a second the Jew; they seek to approach God the Father by works of law, all the while ignoring the logos. Ignoring the monogamous son. Ignoring the one who was sent. They think they can get to God the Father a different way. What about the academic elite today in our, in our universities? that would look and they will say, they will try to understand our creation outside the logos. Ignoring Jesus Christ as a merely a good teacher from antiquity. All the while they will prop up and practically deify Maxwell. Newton, and these, these guys that, that made these great discoveries like Faraday, uh, those guys gave us explanations of little interesting forces like this, this, this electromagnetic interaction. But let me tell you, their explanation of these little forces pales in comparison to the explanation that the monogenes gave of the force throughout all the universe. So we need to remember this. And I brought I, I wanted to read a quote from John Calvin because I think it, he did an excellent job summarizing. They who form their ideas of God in his naked majesty apart from Christ have an idol instead of the true God as the case is with the Jews and the Turks. Whosoever then seeks really to know the only true God must regard him as the father of Christ For whenever our mind seeks God, except Christ be thought of, it will wander and be confused until it is wholly lost. It's a matter of life and death. And Jesus came and he made it exceedingly clear when he spoke to his disciples in John 14. He said, Jesus speaking to Thomas and the rest were there with him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life no one, and I mean no one, comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip stood up, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Sounds like Moses. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, Philip, and Yet you have not come to know me. He who has seen me has seen the father. Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his work. This is the situation. One way, one door. If you want to see the father, look to the son guide the way to the father and I believe in Christendom in the U.S. today we're starting to gravitate away from a healthy understanding of these perspectives we tend to magnify one over the other we may even altogether just forget the view of the father but the reality is Jesus wanted us and and he came to give us access to the father Paul says in Ephesians he speaks of Jesus saying for through him Jesus we both Jews and Gentiles have our access in one spirit to the Father. So my prayer is that we here at CCC grow deeper in our understanding of these awesome realities of God the Father, His monogamous Son, the only one of His kind, the one sent to communicate these things to us because in so doing, there is life When we find that and we base our life off of of these realities. Because Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, speaking to his father, listened to his words. And this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When we get to heaven... And my hope is your name and my name. My confident expectation is they're written in the Lamb's book of life. The Logos book. And we are able to go in and see this scene. And walk into the throne room of God. And see these things that, that we can only just try to close our eyes and just barely imagine. That no eye has seen. And, and he, we will stand before the Father and the Son will be there. He's the only way that we got there in the first place. And he'll say, this one believed. This one heard my word. This one heard the communication. This one heard your words that you commanded me to take to the peoples. The signal to the nations. This one, Joel Butler, he heard and he believed. And he's one of mine. And I've brought him in here to be face-to-face with you, God, face-to-face with you, Father, and that'll be an incredible, incredible day, and only through him could we have that access, I was telling the story at first, my brother worked for a while for a government agency that had, did all kinds of top-secret things, and I got to visit him once, you don't get to walk into top-secret government places very often, just off the street, but I walked in, and they, my brother would walk through, and he had his card, you know, his little key card. He's with me. He's with me. I just walk alongside. Just walk right beside him. Walk a little bit behind him, actually. He's with me. He can, he can come on in here. And eventually, you get in there. And like, wow, this is... Not very many people have seen this. Maybe you see it in a movie. They try to depict it in a movie. But I'm in a, I'm in a spot that only the spy movies are really talking about. And, and you're like, this is pretty cool. Now, that's cool, but that pales in comparison to walking into the throne room of God and he'll say, he's with me, come on in. He's with me, this, is, this one's mine. So that's the picture I think John opened his book with. If you wanna know more, we're gonna study the book of John in our adult Bible study here in the first service starting August 25th. We're gonna go verse by verse, word by word, page by page to see the picture that John paints regarding the monogenesis sun so let's close